How's everybody feeling? Everybody feeling okay? Lift your hands up if you would with me. Just lift your hands. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise. We invite your presence, your power, your life, your light, your healing, anointing, your glory. We thank you for your victory. We thank you for the demonstration of power that you are releasing amongst us. Father, I bless everybody that's here, everyone that will listen and watch. We just pray that there will be a powerful transmission of your spirit, your presence, your grace, and your glory imparted into people's lives. Give you thanks for what we're doing. Thank you for ordering our steps and leading and guiding us into all truth. We receive the ministry of the Holy Spirit, whose job it is to lead us and guide us into truth and away from darkness and into the light. We give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. If you can agree with that this morning, just say, Amen. You may be seated. So I started something in a vein last week, kind of started it on Easter and well, let me, let me back up. So we don't have spiritual growth night on Wednesday nights through the month of May. And one of the things I heard it this week, even one of the things that happens to people sometimes when they sit under the teaching, all those wonderful things that, that, you know, those of you that gave us reviews, thank you so much. I'm very humbled whenever I hear about how the teaching specifically, because that's my specific role here has brought transformation and healing into people's lives. But it's also uh, paradigm shattering in some respects. In other words, uh, we come from outside of the usual belief system and perceptions and understandings of Scripture and who God is. And it can also be uh, difficult for people to make that transition. And the one thing I hear more than any other when people have sat under the teaching is, I don't know how to pray anymore. So over the summer, at least starting in June, what we're going to do is we're going to do like a school of sort of school of prayer, meditation and things like that to help give um, some structure to, okay, now that my paradigm, my understanding of who I am and who God is, is changing, what do I do now? So we're going to attempt to answer some of those questions. The other thing we'll do when I finish this series, because I'm calling this series now, Rethinking the Passion of Christ, Rethinking What It Means, Jesus' Death, Burial, Resurrection, his sort of what we used to call the finished work of Christ. And we'll do on a Sunday morning a question and answer time. So we'll give you a framework for the next couple of weeks, how to submit your questions. I need to have them ahead of time, though, so I'm not caught too much off guard by something. <laughs> um, and, and we'll go ahead and do that, and hopefully that will be helpful for you. Along those lines, I'm going to be gone the next couple of weeks. Please be praying for me. I'm going to be in Arkansas at their annual prophetic conference, the church in Cabot that I've been going to for years. And uh, that should be a great time. I'm looking forward to that. And then I'll be, we'll be taking a vacation, my family and I, in uh, Arizona for a week as well. So it's one of the things I'm trying to get better about <laughs> is taking vacations and making more time for myself and family. So I won't be here the next couple of uh, Sundays. And then, you know, we'll be actually halfway through May by the time I get back. And then we'll, I'll probably do another message or two on this. And then we'll do some question and answer. And then by the time June rolls around, we'll be ready to go. Okay? So there's my part of the announcements. So with that in mind, <laughs> let's shift gears and let's come back. We're going to talk again about rethinking the passion of Christ. So I was brought up, as I'm sure many of you were, on a belief system where really we kind of reduced what Jesus was doing down to the cross. That's where the, the big stuff really happened. Uh, I mean, sure, Jesus had his teachings like the Sermon on the Mount and the different parables and stuff that he taught. But the real juicy stuff, the real good stuff happened when he died on the cross. And our understanding of salvation began with God's condemnation over humanity and a literal geographical place 
called hell. <laughs> and, and our concept of hell, the concept of hell that I had, came more out of the Middle Ages and really more from Dante's uh, version, if you've ever read Dante's Inferno, kind of his version of hell where there's literal fire and, and eternal conscious torment and demons that are jabbing you with pitchforks because for whatever you did, for rejecting Christ or whatever, and, and it was located in the center of the earth. And, and, and so that's a pretty big deal. There's actually nothing more traumatic. There's nothing scarier than the idea of this omnipotent, all-powerful being sending you to a place of eternal conscious torment. And to kind of make the point, last week I said, you know, uh, on the reverse side of that when we sing Amazing Grace. There's a line in there when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we've first begun. And that's, that's a beautiful thought, isn't it? But let's reverse it and let's, let's understand that from the, the perspective of where I was coming from before, the vast majority of humanity did not go there. It would be a small slither of us because, you know, uh, narrow is the way and straight is the path that leads to salvation, right? So there was the few of us that made it. We would be singing, you know, no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. But if you turn it around and think the majority, according to this view, the majority go to a place of fire and pitchforks and, and torment and devils and, and, and they would be singing it this way. When we've been there 10,000 years, uh, burning in the flames. We've no less days to scream in pain or we've no less days to scream His name than when we first begun. And how then do we understand the justice of God if there is eternal conscious torment, the worst torment you could possibly imagine, for eternity based on temporary mistakes? based on sins or ideas that are embraced and believed within the context of a time-space world versus that, right? And and I was brought up with this southern, sort of fiery, southern Methodist preacher where everything was a sin, right? Like like cards, playing cards was a sin, and dancing was a sin, and, and all this all this stuff, right? And so, but God's answer to that was to send Jesus Christ, and this is why we made the cross so important, because it was at the cross that God vented His wrath, all that wrath that He had towards humanity, He, he vented it on Jesus. I remember hearing one preacher talk about it, and he said, if you're eyes could be opened to the cross, if you could see what was happening in the invisible world, what you would have seen was God's fist of wrath coming out of heaven and striking Christ in all of his anger so that he could absorb the wrath of God. And then by absorbing the wrath of God, if you'll just believe the right thing, if you'll just believe that God did that for you and you'll call on the name of Jesus, then, then you'll be saved. And a lot of us got saved because who wants to, who wants to think about or who wants to even face the thought of that eternal conscious torment and so that became kind of the 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 movement and the emphasis right and yet the reality is is that um, the Bible doesn't spend a lot of time on that stuff it really doesn't and even the stuff where it talks about hell and what it is 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 somewhat cryptic I mean this idea of, of literal flames of fire is is ridiculous because uh, your body clearly if if you want to believe that and embrace that your body clearly does not your physical body clearly does not go to hell because we can still bury it It's not like you die and disappear you know and God took you 
So all that language is, is metaphoric anyway, right? And there's certainly nothing about demons down there and nothing about pitchforks and all that. Again, that's something that's imagery and myth that comes out of the Middle Ages. But that's how we've understood sort of the work of Christ. And so what I'm inviting you to do is to maybe think a little bit differently and maybe even think a little more biblically about what it is that Christ came to do. And so I want to begin to answer that question from the Scriptures and from... The book of John, the book of John, chapter 5, verses uh, 19 through 20. And again, this is a case where I'm using, you can see if you can read the fine print up there, it's the authorized King James Version, because when I look at it in the Greek language, the King James gets it closest and the most accurate to what actually John said. Is that okay? So he says, and we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. We are of God and the whole world lieth in wickedness. And the word lieth there means is buried in wickedness. We are of God and the whole world. Everybody say with me, the whole world. The whole world is buried in wickedness. And we know that the Son of God is come and hath given us an understanding that we may know Him that is true and we are in Him that is true, even in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. So notice how John sets this up. He, he acknowledges that they are of God, the community of faith there. And he also acknowledges that, that the whole world is buried in wickedness. That's how he presents the problem. But he does not say, I mean, what a perfect opportunity. If the gospel was that Jesus came to absorb the wrath of God so that you could miss hell and gain heaven, John is missing a perfect opportunity to tell us that. Because he sets it up. You're of God. The whole world's in wickedness. But look, here's what the Son of God came. The Son of God came to give us an understanding and to give us... Uh, so that we may know something. And the word for know there is the Greek word gnosis, and it means to know something for yourself by experience. It's, it's a Greek word that says this is not the kind of knowledge that you get from reading it in a book. This is not the kind of knowledge that you get from hearing a sermon preached. This is the kind of knowledge where you know for yourself by experience something. And what is it that you know for yourself by experience? You know him, the true God, right? And you know yourself in Him. <laughs> so you, you don't just know Him, but you know yourself in Him. And then he says, look at this last statement. This is the true God and eternal life. Not, not eternal life in heaven, but an eternal life that is born of an experience of who God is and who you are. Not an eternal life that's born of living right and according to a certain set of rules and regulations. Not an eternal life that's based on making sure that you have the sinner's prayer down, right? Because this has been a perfect place to put the sinner's prayer in there and say that you might have eternal life if you pray this prayer. Or that you might have eternal life if you believe that Jesus died for you. But he's saying, no, you have eternal life that's born out of, out of something that happens in your consciousness. An understanding and an experiential knowing. And then he says, this is the true God. And so what he means there is, it's not enough to know God apart from you. 
You don't know the true God if you know God apart from you. You only know the true God when it's you and He together. That you're partakers of the divine nature. That you have your your own divinity as an image of God, as an icon of God. That you've got the spark of the divine inside of you. And Jesus came to open up your understanding and to take you to a place of knowing Him and knowing who you are. And this, you and Him together, this is God. And this is eternal life. That that's the the secret that God came to give us and to bring us. And he says this, he says, the whole world lies in wickedness. Now the word wickedness there, in the Greek, it means sick and diseased. In anguish and full of labors. So it's not talking about wickedness from a moral standpoint. And your newer translations say it this way, we know the whole world lies under the influence of the wicked one. But that's not what it says in the original language. It just says the whole world's buried in anguish. The whole world is buried in pain. The whole world is sick and diseased. The whole world is full of labors. So here's the question. Are you a believer or a knower? Do you just believe something or do you know something? Because Jesus didn't come just for you to believe something. Jesus came to make you a knower. See, faith is for when you don't know. Faith is the trust for when you don't know and you're just, you're just moving by, by, by faith. But, but God and Jesus Christ came to release a knowledge, came to, to transform you, not just into a believer, but to transform you into a knower. And see, here's where, here's, here's where our problem happens, because our, our problem happens because we're born into this world, and immediately we're, we're trying to find security. See, here's, here's how the world lies in, in wickedness. Let's just do it like this. We're, we're born into this world, and we're trying to find security. Security is important to us, is it not? And, and we seek security. We seek all kinds of security. And so originally what we want to do with our children, as we, we start as little kids, and especially if you start in the church, we want to make sure that you have eternal security. <laughs> so, so we teach our kids the, the gospel. We teach them to pray the sinner's prayer. And if you grew up like I did under that, you know, kind of hellfiery brimstone kind of stuff, you hear about or you read in your Bible, you know, about eternal conscious torment. And that's scary stuff. And so we find security. The church tells us you can find security by doing these things. And actually, the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, gained ground. And really, Constantine, in the 300s, he reorganized a, a, a British... Uh, I'm sorry, British. <sighs> I have to do it like an Italian so I can remember. A Roman Empire. A Roman Empire. That, that is crumbling and falling apart. And he gets a brilliant idea and he says, I can unite them under this God who, who is Christ. And so he makes up this story about seeing the cross in the sky and, and he turns the, the Roman Empire now into a Christian empire, but he builds on people's fears and, and he gathers together a congregation of bishops who, who will, who will only believe what the state tells them to believe. And, and he buys into that one of the prominent theologians at the time was a guy by the name of Augustine. And Augustine said, everybody's born in sin. Everybody's born separated from God. Everybody's born under the judgment of God. And he, and he gets a brilliant idea. And he says, okay, if we can tell people that, that, that eternally they're going to die, then we can give them a sense of security if they join the, 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 the state-sponsored church. 
And so here's the deal. We're going to sponsor priests. We're going to sponsor people who represent Christ, supposedly. And what we're going to say is, is that your child is born. And if your child dies, some of you that were Catholic, you know this. If your child dies before they're baptized, then they're going to go to hell. And so what we do is we have the state-sponsored priest offering them salvation by baptism and offering them to, that they can... But, but then they realize, you know, if we make you eternally secure, that doesn't keep you a good citizen of Rome. So what we're going to do is we're going to offer you the Eucharist every Sunday and we're going to tell you you have to go to confession, 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 confession and, and have your sins forgiven by a state-sponsored priest so that you can say, you see how brilliant the idea was? And so the problem is, is that the church that as we know it grew up from this, 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 this thing that was there to offer you security. So we, we take our children and we say you can have security, you can find security about God in the church if you believe what the church tells you to believe. And you can find security in society uh, by, by doing what society tells you that you're supposed to do. And so we try to teach you what your role is in our society. <laughs> right? And then, and then we start to, and, and so then, then we, we, we put little Johnny in, in little leagues, right? <laughs> we put him in little leagues. And so here you have this eight-year-old kid who's, who's maybe never, uh, doesn't really know what he's doing. I mean, I remember signing Elijah up for T-ball. I'll give you an example. Signing Elijah up for T-ball, and they're gonna have a practice. And, and, and we, we like sign him up like the day before or something. So we take him the next day, and there's supposed to be a practice. Well, they end up taking pictures. Like the, you know, the, the cute pictures, so you can, you know what I'm saying, right? And, and it takes the whole time, so there's no practice. And he's never seen a baseball game because I'm just not into that. I mean, I'd rather watch paint dry. I'm glad Burl's not here because Burl would rebuke me. He loves baseball. But I just don't. I don't get the game. I don't. I don't care about it. I mean, it's just maybe. Yeah, we'll go to Rocky's game, but that's more for fellowship than anyway. You get the point, right? So, so the, he the, he's on the the batting side first. And he's first in the box, and I'm like, oh my God, this could, this couldn't be worse. This couldn't be worse because he has no clue what to do. And they're telling him, just hit the ball and run to first. And I'm thinking, he first? He doesn't know what first is. And so I watch my son, and he's he's pretty, you know, athletic. He's faster than anything. And and he he hits that softball, and he he doesn't hit the tee. He hits it perfectly. He hits a line drive all the way up first base, and he just takes off running for first base. And I'm like, oh, thank you, Jesus! Like, like I don't know, you know, like somehow he just knew. And and he goes, but the problem was he went zipping right past the first base. And he's faster than all the other kids, so he can outrun everybody else to the ball. And he gets his own ball, and he starts bringing it back to the team. And I'm like, that's my son. So then we stick him five, six years old in center field, and the ball starts, you know, and there he is out, and the ball starts coming. To, this doesn't happen to him. I'm just saying hypothetically. This didn't happen next. But hypothetically, we stick a six or seven-year-old out there, and here comes the ball in center field, and the coach is yelling at him, and he drops the ball. And so now not only the coaches are yelling at him, but the other parents are yelling at him, and they're saying, they're yelling at the coach, get that kid off the field. <laughs> And then maybe mom and dad are yelling at him and say, Johnny, you didn't catch that ball. You're, you're not, you're walking home tonight. You're not eating dinner. And so here we are, seven, eight year old kid, and we're giving him a nervous breakdown. We're giving him a nervous breakdown. So then we send him to our public schools, and God bless our public schools, and everybody who's working in them, God bless you, we love you, but, but you know better than anybody if you're working in the public schools, the system's screwed up. Right? 
And so we, we put them in and we, and we, 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 they gotta get grades and now they gotta pass CSAP scores and tests and, and they, and they have all this homework. I'm like, are you kidding me? You, you take my son and you sit him in class for eight, you know, eight hours a day and he gets a little bit of recess here and there and he comes home and he wants to play and what do we have to do? We have to sit him down and do an hour worth of homework or something. I'm like, and I'm rebelling against the system. I'm like, I don't care if you don't get good grades. I'm gonna let you be a human being. I'm gonna let you be a human being. Now it's not an endorsement to fail at school or whatever, but I'm just saying it, it, the whole process can become dehumanizing. But we tell him, hey, now, now Johnny, you have to go to college. Because you have to go to college so you can have financial security, so you can afford a psychiatrist and a therapist just like I do. To, to help you manage your nervousness and your anxiety and your nervous breakdown that this society gives you because what's the point I'm trying to make? The whole society is buried in, in anguish and pain and insecurity. And you want security? Let's just think about it for a minute. You are, you are living on a tennis ball that is flying through outer space at a thousand miles per hour with nobody driving it. And you want security. Think about it. We were talking at the break about a friend of ours. We had a, we had a friend. He was a, he's a physical therapist. This goes back 20 years. He's a physical therapist and for the Air Force. And he was, he was a captain in the Air Force. And, but he, his dream was to be in the space program, right? So one of his clients was the general at NORAD <laughs> up in Colorado Springs. And so he's working on the general at NORAD and he's sharing with him, you know, why'd you get in the Air Force? Well, I want to get into the space program, whatever. So the next thing he knows, he gets into the space program. And the next thing we know is FBI agents come knocking on our door because he's got to get his top secret clearance and they want to know all about him and asking questions and all this stuff so he can get his top secret clearance so he can be in the space program. Well, he got in the space program, all right. You know what happened to him? They sent him like to North Dakota or South Dakota or one of those places and they stuck him in a missile silo. <laughs> and he was the guy, if we went to nuclear, if there was nuclear war, he was one of two people that had to engage with the keys and set off the warheads and he had a, a firearm and they would they would shoot the other guy if he wouldn't... Uh, send him off when it was time to send him off. And it didn't take him three, four months before he had a nervous breakdown, became suicidal, had a nervous breakdown, and had to get some kind of medical leave from the, from the Air Force. And I remember during that time, he just tells me, he says, Aaron, he says, let me just tell you something. You don't know what's going on in this world, and you don't want to know what's going on in this world. And so I'm just saying, we, we try to find security in all these all these various areas. And so the early Christians come around. The early Christians come around and here's what they say. They're saying, look, see, in early Christianity, it wasn't about replacing one form of government for another form of government. See, we've bought into this belief if we can just push our agenda and we can push our, our belief systems and whatever, somehow we can improve our lives and we can improve society by, by adding a, a new form of, of government. And so we bought into this belief system in the early 2000s, right? Watch how this happens. 9-11 happens. I'm not trying to be political. I'm just trying to point out how the whole world lies in wickedness. So we think, you know, so 9-11 happens. So what happens? It's a trauma to our nation. It's a trauma to our consciousness. And what are we looking for? We're looking for security. And you got to forgive me for getting on the soapbox, but some, some of y'all get upset with the kids, you know, these kids, uh, because, because this is how corrupt the system is. Uh, when did, think about, when did Columbine happen? When did the shooting in Columbine happen? What, that was the mid-90s, right? Right? And here we are at 2018, and we're still having our children unprotected in public schools dying with school shooters, right? Right? 
right? And, and every time there's a school shooting, the powers that be want to make it about gun control. They want to make it about gun control. And so they start pumping out propaganda. So you get mad at kids who walk out or whatever, but you don't understand the fear that they're living with. Exactly. So the truth of the matter is, you're living in the safest time ever. Statistically, this is the best time, safest time to ever be alive. If you don't believe that, you just haven't been alive very long. Because, I mean, they took merry-go-rounds. Like, I used to love the merry-go-round. But we got to get rid of the merry-go-round because kids are flying off the merry-go-round and breaking, breaking their skull and breaking their arm. And we can't have that. My God, you go to McDonald's and they're just, they build a play area for the kids. And my God, there's like this huge warning, you know, like, like we're not responsible if your child breaks its neck or something. You know, danger, like everywhere you go, it's danger, you know. Like they even advertise your medicine on TV and then tell you that, 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 that the, the stinking disclaimer for the medicine is longer than the actual commercial. My God, by the time they've given me cancer and liver failure and if you start to turn yellow, make sure you call your doctor right away and, and all this stuff and this whole list of terrible, horrible side effects. And I even forget what the medicine is supposed to do. Oh yeah, it's supposed to clear up my skin condition. So it'll get rid of my itch, but it'll make my liver fail and turn me yellow and send me to the hospital. So what I'm trying to tell you is you're living in the safest time, but you're exposed to so much information. I mean, the odds of your child dying in a school shooting, are pro- you probably got better odds of winning the state lottery or something. I mean, you understand what I'm saying? But you got to understand the fear and the need for security that's there. And adults haven't done anything about it. All we've done is argue about gun control. I'm sorry, I'm getting a little bit on a soapbox. Here's my point. 9-11 happens. I was traveling. Heck, we went to Disney World the week after 9-11 happened. Like the first weekend in, whatever, I mean like less than a month. Less than a month after 9 And it was beautiful. You didn't even have to get a fast pass. Because everybody thought, oh, if they're going to blow up someplace, they're probably going to blow up Disney World next. So we're like the only ones there, man. We're having the time of our lives. But here's my point. We were traveling. And I'm telling you, overnight, overnight, and I've traveled internationally. I've been to Africa. I've been to Far East Russia. I've been, I've been various different places in the world. And I'm going to tell you something. Every airport in the world conformed to American standards of security overnight. And nobody mentioned bomb control. It's about safety. And so you got to be kidding me. We can't do something to transform. Don't tell me we can't make our public schools safer. We made every airport in the world safer overnight. And we've never had a situation like 9-11 again. And here we are 20-some years or, or longer after Columbine, and we just keep, and we keep pumping out the same BS, and everybody keeps buying into it. And here's the problem. None of it has the answer. None of it does. See, we thought if we go in and we bomb Iraq and we take out Saddam Hussein or we take out the Taliban that somehow we're making the world safer because we think we can replace one system for another system. And so our president gets up there and I believe maybe from who knows what he was thinking, who knows why he did what he did. But he stands up there and says, I know what we're going to do. We're going to tap into the American value system and say we're going to bring democracy and we're going to bring freedom around the world because everybody wants to be free. But the problem is, is you cannot bring freedom by replacing one enslaving system for another enslaving system. And you have to admit, I don't believe for one second that that the Middle East is any better off or any safer or that we're necessarily any safer because we sent our sons and daughters out to bleed and to die in that war. I don't believe it, not for a second. 
When I was coming up in the, in the late 80s and during the Cold War, we tell Russia, we say, look, get rid of communism. <laughs> so they get rid of communism, and you know what happens? The mafia takes over. <laughs> and their crime rate goes, goes up and all this stuff. Because, you, because here's the point, and here's the point the early Christians were making. You cannot control society. You, 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 you cannot replace one system of wickedness for another system of wickedness and expect it to ever get any better. And so Jesus did not come to transform your culture to, 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 to kingdom values. <laughs> the, the world is not going to get better uh, because, because you are out there working to replace one system for another system because the issue is not... That, because the whole world lieth in wickedness. And so here's the point of the gospel. The point of the gospel was this. The whole world lies in wickedness and humanity is going to be transformed by transforming human consciousness, not by transforming human systems. Because as long as it comes from the same godless system and the same godless philosophy, it doesn't matter what principle you replace it with, you're going to have a mess on your hands. Washington is a mess. (laughs) And yet our founding fathers were bringing a system that was meant to guarantee the right of every human being to what? To the right of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I'll tell you this, racism... Oh, I'm going to get myself in trouble. Just bear with me, all right? Think about it. Racism is an American creation. Prejudice is a human problem. Prejudice, when somebody's different than us, they scare us. And so in our quest for security, we minimize or marginalize or oppress one group so that our group can have the power so that we can have security. That is a human problem. But race is an American creation because you cannot have your founding document saying that God has created every human being. See, we're all from the human race. But you cannot have your founding document saying that we want to guarantee the right of every human being to pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness while you're still endorsing and embracing slavery for another hundred years. So we have to say they're from a different race. Race is not the issue. Ethnicity is the issue. Differences and diversity among human beings and learning how to flow together and embrace that, uh, that diversity and realize you may look different than me, you may think differently than me, you may act differently than me, but I don't have to be afraid of you. I can honor you as being made in the image of God. And I'm telling you right now that the oppression in America of the Native Americans, the oppression in America of the African Americans was born of a Christian system that believed that everybody was born condemned under the under God and 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 that God predestined if it wasn't for Calvinism none of that stuff would have survived but Calvin said everybody's born totally depraved and God has selected some to be saved and he selected some not to be not to be saved and so a lot of the Christians when we say it's founded upon a Christian that America is a Christian nation we need to understand that America is a Calvinist nation and the, Puritan, the, the Puritans weren't just being persecuted. They were rebel rousers. So England threw them out. And they came over here with their Calvinist theology thinking all these other races are somehow predestined by God to not be saved. And so they could tell the natives there, either you serve our God or we're going to kill you. You either you, you let us come in and you let us steal your resources and you let us oppress your people and you, or we're going to kill your, your men, women, and children. And we've got biblical precedence for it because Israel did it with the Canaanites. See, people don't like to hear this. 
My point is, Jesus Christ is making it clear that's not the answer. The answer in the gospel is this, is that there has to come an experiential knowing that when you know the true God who is love and you know yourself in Him, then you're automatically going to operate from a place of love and perfect love casts out fear. And so no longer are you trying to find security in the role that you're playing in a society, but something has transformed up here. Something has changed in your consciousness so that you understand who you are and you understand the human race and you understand God and you understand and you know it by experience and you move from being a a believer to being a knower. Well, it, it preaches good anyway. So it's, <laughs> it's the truth anyway. Listen to this statement. No one comes to his true selfhood by being what society wants him to be or doing what society wants him to do. Family, society, church, trade, and profession political and patriotic allegiances, as well as rules and commandments, are in reality not in the least conducive to the true spiritual welfare of the human soul. In other words, all those things have nothing to do with the condition of your soul. On the contrary, they are more often than not the very shackles which keep us from our true spiritual destiny. In other words, if your mind is trained to experience selfhood based on what it means to be a good Tomlinson and make sure you don't bring reproach to the Tomlinson name, to know what it is, your, your mind is trained to say, if you have an education, you can, you can reach your potential. So you go to school and give yourself a nervous breakdown trying to get A's so that someone else is pleased with you and who you are. So that you operate yourself according, so that the church can embrace you and endorse you for who you are and celebrate who you are. <laughs> you see it? And then you follow these rules and commandments thinking somehow that's going to make you, but come on, we know it's true. Listen, I know it's true. I know it's true because for 20 years I tried to fit in. For 20 years I tried to conform myself to what the church culture and whatever else said that I needed to be. I didn't try really hard because I've always been kind of, you know, on the edge, but I was trying. But I thought, if I just live righteously, if I just do right, if I follow the rules, if I follow commands, and yet, so, so the whole time, my, my soul is thirsting. <laughs> my, my soul is hungering. And Jesus, if you look at the Beatitudes from this perspective, what you can see Jesus saying is, is look, all of those blessings come to people who don't fit in. <laughs> Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those that say, look, all my righteousness isn't doing me any good to help develop my spiritual, my spiritual being. Uh, uh, th- this is what Paul was saying. I was born a Hebrew of the Hebrews. <laughs> I was circumcised the eighth day. I was a Pharisee. I went to all the schools. According to righteousness, I exceeded them in righteousness. But I found something in Christ. He says this in Philippians chapter 3. He says, all that social stuff that I did, all that good stuff that I fit in, he said, I counted it as dung. Your Bible cleans it up, but that's what he says. He says, I counted as crap. All of it is crap compared to the excellency of the experiential knowledge of Christ. And he said, this one thing I do, I'm not working to transform society. I'm not doing that. He says, this one thing I do, forgetting those things that are behind me, not as mistakes necessarily, but also his accomplishments, forgetting those things that are behind me, I press on towards those things that are before me that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus laid hold of me. Why did Jesus lay hold of him? To take him to heaven? No. That I might know him 
and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings that I might be conformed to His death, that I might attain to the resurrection of God. And we perverted that and twisted that and said, you're so evil and wicked in yourself and sin in you is so wicked and evil that you have to destroy yourself in order to be accepted by God. But actually the death He's talking about is a death to the false image that has been crafted for you by family and by society. Read it in its context. The false image of what it meant to be a Hebrew. The false image of what it meant to be righteous. The false image of what it meant to be educated. i got to die to all of that because that's causing me to lose my soul. See, that's what Jesus meant when He said, what does it profit a person if they gain the whole world but they lose their soul. See, we got to understand that for us as Christians, it's an inside job. Happiness is an inside job. Joy is an inside job. Love is an inside job. Peace is an inside job. And the only way you can have a peace that passes understanding is when your consciousness has been raised out of the wickedness, out of the wickedness, the pain and the anguish and the toil and the labor of this world to be raised up into a place where you know Him as the true God and you know yourself in Him and you realize that you and Him together are the true God, and you begin to live in whatever context you find yourself from that place. And when you live from that place, it doesn't matter whether you're a Democrat or you're a communist. It doesn't matter whether you're, you're a... Uh, you thought I was going to say Republican. I meant, it doesn't matter whether you live in a democracy or a communist society. It doesn't matter whether you are a donkey or an elephant. A Democrat or a Republican for the uninitiated. Doesn't matter whether you're 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 a you're a liberal or you you belong to the grand old white people party. I, I mean, I'm sorry. Um, sorry. The point is, everybody's frustrated. Everybody that watches Fox News, and I know about, they're angry and frustrated. Everybody that watches MSNBC, they're angry and frustrated. And all of them think, if we could just, if we could just organize the system and arrange the system according to our value system, then we could live in peace and happiness. But if the answer isn't there, it's, it's all crap. You gotta come out of all of it. So you gotta renounce the world. You're in the world, but you're not of the world. Because, because you come to a consciousness. You come to an understanding. You come to an experiential knowledge that transforms and changes everything. And then you become the light of the world. And religion has tried to teach us that somehow we're separate from that. Somehow we're separate from God. And so, because we're separate from God, we need somebody who's closer to God that can teach us. We need somebody who's closer to God that can pray for us and lay hands on us. (laughs) Right? But look what John says. Look what John says. Oh, wait a second. Now let's bypass that. It's not for this message. Look what John says. I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. Trying to tell you they got something special that you don't have. As for you, the anointing you received from Him remains in you. And you do not need that anyone teach you, but as His anointing teaches you about all things, and that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it taught you to remain in Him. Look at that. You have an anointing inside you. You have, see, see, you're looking without for transformation. You're looking without for security. But you're never going to find it out there. You're only going to find it in here. And so the church comes along that wants you to be dependent upon the church. That wants you to be dependent upon something outside of yourself. And it says, don't look within. You can't trust your heart. Your heart is deceitful and corrupt. You're, 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 you're as bad as they go. All you're going to find if you look within is sin. Don't look within. You're going to get deceived. 
But John says the exact opposite. He says you have an anointing inside you. And if you look inside, that anointing inside you will teach you everything. Everything you need to know. You don't need to get it from external sources. You don't need anyone outside of you to teach you. you got something inside you. And what's inside you is so educated and so wise and so powerful. If you'll just look within, it'll teach you about all things. One of the things I do in, in my other life is I'm a clinical mental health counselor. And people want to come, they want you to tell them, they want you to fix their problems, or they want you to tell you, tell them something. But the reality is, and this is what I tell all my clients, you are the expert on you. Amen. Kevin, you're the expert on Kevin. Charlene, you're the expert on Charlene. Yes, sir. Right? And even the Bible says, Amen. counsel in the heart of a man is like deep waters. And it takes a man of understanding to draw it out. See, the goal is not to come in, Aaron Tomlinson, big man of faith and power, Aaron Tomlinson, you know, Mr. Fix-It. I mean, dear Lord, I thought that was my job for years. And so did everybody else. And then everybody else that can't get along with everybody else wants you to put pressure on them to fix them. But the reality is, a good, the good that we're supposed to be doing for each other is to realize, look, inside of you, in the deep waters of your consciousness, is counsel. God wrote His law inside your heart and put His laws inside your mind for you. You know what to do. Paul said it this way, no one knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man that is within him. So the job is, it's like you came with a scroll of destiny about your life and the best that we can do for one another is, is break a seal <laughs> and draw out of you the counsel and the understanding that's already within you so that you, so point you to the light that's inside you so that you know you can walk by that light. See, Jesus never looked at the people of his day and said, you're the scum of the earth. He looked and said, you are the salt of the earth. He looked at him, he said, you are the light of the world because he's trying to awaken humanity to who they are. So how does this tie in with the rethinking of the passion of Christ? Because here's what I'd like to submit to you. That what, what Jesus is showing us in his passion... Let me see what I got. What else I got here. No, no, no. I don't want to do that one. All right. So how do we rethink the passion of Christ from this lens? It's very simple. Jesus did not fit in. He did not fit in. And you'll see it now if you go back and you read the Gospels. There's one point where it says the people came and took him and by force they were going to make him king. And so he went and withdrew himself. We're doing it today. We're going to force Jesus on people and call it evangelism. We're going to force his lordship. We're going to force his authority on people. But Jesus withdraws himself. And that's why so many evangelistic efforts ultimately fail. You would think, based on the old understanding, that's the perfect thing for them to do. But he withdraws himself. Think about that. Another place, someone comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, tell my brother to divide his inheritance with me. And Jesus makes this statement. He says, who made me judge or arbitrator over you? You know, he says this in the Gospel of John. He says, in that day, in the day that your consciousness, in the day that you realize that just as I'm in the Father, you're in the Father. 
And I'm in you. And we're one in this thing. And I'm your brother. Elder brother be it, but I'm your brother. And he says, in that day that you have that consciousness, he says, you'll ask me for nothing. You'll ask me for nothing. You'll ask the Father yourself and the Father will give it to you. Up to this point, you've not asked. In other words, Jesus is, what he's trying to get across to us the whole time is, is not that he's the exception, but that he's the example. He's the example. Of what, he, he, he tells his disciples, look, guys, you see what I'm doing? He says, you can do it too. The works that I do, you can do also. He wasn't trying to set himself apart. When he walked on the, when he walked on the water, he wanted Peter to walk on the water. So the whole thing was not that I'm something special, but I'm to show you who you can become. And so here's the deal. Jesus lived as his authentic self. That's my point. They tried to come and make him a political leader, but that's, he wasn't going to buy into that system. <laughs> Lord, why do you show yourself to us and not to the world? You need to show yourself to the world, but he wasn't going to because I'd be buying into the world system. So ultimately what happened, because he didn't fit into the religious system and he didn't live by their rules. Let me go back to that verse. That's a good place to pick that up. Um, Luke eleven fifty two. Woe to you experts of the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge, the key to gnosis, the key to experiential understanding. You yourselves have not entered and you have hindered those who are entering. You can't look within yourself. You've got to look to me. I'm the big man. And you better make sure you call me pastor because otherwise you're being dishonored. <laughs> and so here's the deal. Jesus lived his authentic self. And here's what he's showing you. He says, if they persecuted me, he says, I came as light in the world and I showed them their sin. And if they persecuted me and hated me, they're going to persecute and hate you. So here's the, here's the method. <laughs> you want to live authentically? You want to live your true selfhood? Guess what? It's not the way to win friends and influence people. Because in order for your true spiritual nature and your true personhood to come forth, in order for your light to shine, you have to shed every controlling power that is hindering you from expressing who you truly are. And that's an inside job. You see it? And so here's the power of the passion of the Christ. Your true self will be rejected. <laughs> In other words, you've got to, you've got to embrace the cross the same way Jesus, Jesus was crucified because he wouldn't conform. And so to take up your cross and follow him is to say, I'm willing to live as authentically as Jesus, even if I don't conform to anybody else's opinion of who I'm supposed to be. And I will bear the reproach of that if I must. And here's the beauty of it. That the world says, because who crucified Jesus? Your Bible says the principalities and powers, and you think it means demons. But when Paul refers to principalities and powers, he's talking to the power structures. The literal human power structures that survive on oppression. The cross was reserved. Not, even, not anybody could be crucified. Paul was not crucified. Peter was. What's the difference? Paul was a Roman citizen. Why is it that a Roman citizen could not be crucified? 
Because crucifixion was uniquely reserved for those who were traitors to the state so that they could intimidate people into submission to their laws. And who was it that handed Jesus over to the Romans to be crucified? It was the power, it wasn't the Jews. It was the power structure in Israel that was holding the Jews in captivity. It was the lawyers that were taking away the key of knowledge and inhibiting those that wanted to enter in. They were more interested in their power structures. And so here's what Jesus is showing, that it's the power structures, that the power structures will kill. Here's the message. You ready for it? The power structures will kill the true authentic you. The true authentic self. See, that's our problem. If we're trying to find our expression of selfhood within our profession, it's going to kill who you really are. If you're trying to find that true expression of yourself through a political party, that political party is going to kill who you really are. If you try to find that expression of yourself through following rules and regulations, the rules themselves will kill who you are. Because it's those power structures that kill the true self. But here's the good news. If you will stay true, it can't be killed. If Jesus had not lived authentically, he never could have been raised from the dead. If Jesus had not lived authentically and true to who he was, being governed from the inside by his Father, he never could have been raised from the dead. Because it's by living that authentic self out of that authentic connection with God that life begins to flow. And it's a life, and here's what it's shown us, the passion of Christ, that that life is so powerful that they can try and kill the false self. And the and see, you've you got to get the imagery of it. You've got to get the symbolism of it. And they didn't just kill him. They stationed guardians. Ah, oh, Jesus. That the, the Jewish authorities went to the Romans and said, look, his disciples are going to come and try to steal his body, so you need to guard the tomb. <laughs> See, society can, can try to kill your true self and then they can try to keep it entombed and station guardians around it so that you can't get out. But the, but the reality is if you choose to live authentically, if you choose this path of gnosis, if you choose this path of experiential knowledge, if you begin to renounce the world and say, I cannot find the truest, authentic, most authentic expression of myself by working on the outside, it's only going to happen if I work on the inside. And if I realize that this is all an inside job and I raise my consciousness out of the I take my consciousness that's buried in the pain and the labor and the trials of this world and I raise that consciousness up to a place of being seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus and being in union with God and I begin to live out of that place and I begin to let my light shine from that place then then even if they try to kill me and guard me Because the authentic self, when it's empowered with your intention, and it's empowered with your choice, and it's empowered with your will, and you say, I'm not going to conform, but I'm going to live. Hallelujah. It can't be killed. It can't be crucified. Why? Because this is eternal life. So maybe the, res- the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus isn't about the wrath of God at all. Maybe it's about the triumph of the authentic self that's made in the image of God. That when you let your light shine, yeah, you're going to face adversity. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord will deliver them out of them.
Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Can you feel the impact of that? You feel the power of that? Let me ask this question because I started it off with paradigm of hell and eternal conscious torment and all that stuff. Let me ask you this question. If you come into that experiential knowledge of who God is and you come into that experiential knowledge of who you are, do you have anything to be afraid of? Is God going to look at you and say, hey, we had a great time on earth. And you really came to a knowledge of who you were. But you didn't pray and say in Jesus' name at the end. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. See, here's my issue. Somebody asked me this week, they said, how come you don't do altar calls like for salvation? I said, because here's the problem with it. I can tell you you're a sinner. I can tell you Jesus died for your sins. And I can get you to come forward and pray a prayer and give you a false sense of security. And you go back and you never work on your consciousness and you never work on your soul and you never work on things in your life. And can I really feel confident that I helped you find salvation? Not really. Not for me. I can't. But see, Jesus said the kingdom of God is like a man who sows a seed in the ground. And eventually it sprouts and it takes root and it rises up. And so here's my point. If you, let let me, Paul said this. He said, follow me as I follow the Lord. Here's what I believe. If you follow me as I'm following the Lord, your consciousness will be changed. How do I know? Because my consciousness has been changed. And that's not a momentary prayer fix. That is a progressive process that happens in incremental changes as you expose yourself to experiential knowledge of Christ. And so if you're gradually transformed into the image of Christ, is God really going to look at you and say, depart from me, I never knew you? So are we really helping humanity by giving them their fire insurance? But they never do anything to polish their soul so that the shine can come out. Can you see it? I'm not trying to take away your Lord. I mean, I can see some of you are looking at me like they, like, G, like Mary. <laughs> Mary goes to the empty tomb and she says, they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they've laid him. And that's how some of you are looking at me. You've taken away my Lord and I don't know where you've laid him. That's good. That's good. Because you know where he's laid? He's buried in the depths of your soul. And if you'll just start looking inward, that Christ light will begin to rise and shine. For your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you and His light shall be seen upon you and they shall come from nations and kings shall come to the brightness of your rising. Where is that in the earth today? But see, that's a prophecy right out of Isaiah. 
And I think there's a group of people, I know there's a group of people who are awakening to who they are. See, the way we teach Christian, the way we teach prayer, the way we teach people about their faith, it creates the wrong kind of dependence upon God because it leads to no self-realization of who you are as a king and a priest and who you are not just as a Christian, but as a Christ. Jesus didn't say, the works that I do, you shall ask me to do and I'll do them for you. So that you're forever dependent upon me. He's actually telling his disciples, I'm weaning you off myself. I'm going away, weaning you off myself because it's to your advantage that I go away because if I go away, the Spirit's going to live in you. And when the Spirit lives in you, you'll know that you're just as much one with God as I'm one with God. You'll know that you're just as much God manifested in the flesh as I'm God manifested in the flesh. And so the works that I do, you shall do also. Because I'm going to my Father, weaning myself off of your dependence upon me as your rabbi, your teacher, and your Lord. And that's the place God's wanting to take us. That's the place I'm longing for in my soul. That's the place I'm like, God, how do we get there? How do we bring a company of people into a raised level of consciousness where they know who they are and they're manifesting that light, being that light? And some of it is we've got to take the shackles off. We've got to take the controls off of one another. We've got to quit playing some of the games that we play with one another to try to control and suppress their authentic self. And we begin to need to speak to each other in a way that will empower their authentic self, which is made in the image of God, which is the light of the world, to be able to rise and shine. So that's what I want to leave you with today, saints. I want to tell you, rise and shine. Let that authentic self buried under people's expectations of you. Buried under people's disappointments of you. Buried under the pain of your life. The anguish and the labors of trying to become. Let that authentic you shake off those shackles and be that unique authentic expression of the manifold, many-colored wisdom of God before the principalities and powers. See, let me, let, me, let me close with this. This isn't in my PowerPoint, but we'll close with this. Ephesians. God, I hope I can find it now. <laughs> it's either Ephesians, I think it's Ephesians 3. Like around verse 10. Oh, isn't that great? We'll start in verse 8. To me, Paul says, who am less than the least of all the saints... This grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles, those that don't know God, the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. To the intent that now the manifold, and that word in the Greek means many colored, the multicolored, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. See, when you begin to participate in the fellowship of this mystery, and you begin to let your light shine, you begin to let your authentic self come out, you are a unique color of the wisdom of God that is being manifested 
before all the controlling powers that have been trying to suppress praise. See, that's the purpose of the church. Not to go out and get everybody to pray the sinner's prayer so we can get... My goal is to get to heaven and take as many as I can with me. Great. You're of no earthly good and you're no threat to anybody. That's what the principalities and powers want you to think because then you'll die without expressing the manifold wisdom of God to them. Does that make sense to you? All right, let's pray. Father, I did my best with this message. Lord, I pray anybody that misunderstood, anyone that was maybe offended, that that stuff will just fall away. And that somehow the seed of your gospel and the beauty of who you are, and the beauty of who they are in you, would shine and take root. And that you'd water those seeds and cause life and increase to come. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.